2: Hello and welcome to Read Like a Writer, the books podcast from the Independent Alliance, bringing you the voices and the recommendations from your favourite authors. In each episode, we'll hear about the books and the bookshops closest to these writers' hearts. I'm Anna Fielding and with me in the studio today is Sean Bithell. Not only is he this episode's author, he's also the proprietor of Scotland's largest second-hand bookshop. The shop is rather handily called The Bookshop and it's situated in Wigtown, south-western Scotland. Sean's debut book has a similarly memorable name. It's a diary of a year in his working life, and it's called The Diary of a Bookseller. The book is full of grumpy charm and some good laughs, often at the expense of the more annoying customers. Now, at this point, you may be thinking of a particular television series, but Sean rather cleverly deals with any comparison to Dylan Moran's Bernard Black from Black Books on the first page. Staff and regular customers are all described with wry affection, and Captain, the bookshop cat, now even gets fan mail. But don't dismiss the diary of a bookseller as whimsical. Sean's dedication to the written word is impressive. In addition to running the shop since 2001, he's also one of the trustees of the Wigtown Book Festival, a 10-day event with more than 200 authors, and the smaller but equally loved Wigtown Spring Book Weekend. Above all, there's the anger and sadness that books are valued less, that cheap online selling has compromised how books and the spaces one may buy them in are perhaps not as cherished as they once were. So, Sean... You're a wonderful guest for Read Like a Writer. Um, We are such champions of independent bookshops, so their owners are basically our rock stars. Um,
3: (laughs) That's great to hear. Thank you.
2: (laughs) You did look mildly taken aback at first. (laughs) Extremely taken (laughs) aback. Is that the first time the comparison's been made? Yeah,
3: and probably it'll be the last, I'd imagine, but it's very flattering nonetheless. Thank you.
2: Well, good. I'm glad you think so. Um, I wonder if you could tell me how you writing The Diary of a Bookseller came about.
3: Yes. Yes. In a sense, actually, one of the books that I've picked is a sort of explanation for that, because one of the questions was, um, what inspired you to write your book? Uh, And excuse me, since I bought the shop back in 2001, everyone who's worked there has essentially said of the customers that they're so strange and they are such odd things that you you could write a book about it. And then in 2012, Jen Campbell's book, Weird Things Customers Say in Bookshops, came out. And I and every other bookseller in the country bashed our heads against the wall, thinking, that's the book I wanted to write, but Jen did it. So um, so the, uh, the woman I was seeing at the time, my girlfriend at the time, Jessica, uh, kind of was aware that I'd always had in the back of my mind this idea that I was going to write a book. And uh, so she said, you've got a terrible memory. Just keep a diary every day of what goes on in the shop, and then you can refer back to that as a sort of aid memoir later on uh and after a year i thought oh god what am i going to do with it now and i just sent it to an agent jenny brown and um jenny said yeah it needs a bit of work but uh i think we can bash it into shape so it just stayed in the diary format it didn't get used as a sort of mine for future works uh so that's how it came about all thanks to jen campbell
2: and um Writing as a diarist, do you still keep a diary? Did you find it therapeutic?
3: Oh, my God, it's incredibly therapeutic. It's cathartic. So I think, you know, bef- before I started writing the diary, I'd get really annoyed when customers were rude or ignorant or just dropped things on the floor and knocked things over. And now i just rubbed my hands together with glee. I think the more awful they are, the better, <laughs> the more delighted I am because I'm straight onto the computer and they go straight in. So yes, I keep the diary up to date every day, uh, and which means that I've essentially got another four years' worth of material. It's very rough and ready. It needs work. Um, but uh, yes, I, I still do it. And even if there's no chance of it ever seeing the light of day, I'm, I would carry on doing it just because it gets it out of my system. It does, I don't have to bottle up my rage anymore. I can put it on paper.
2: I'm glad you find it cathartic. I'm glad it's, it's working as a kind of therapy for you.
3: Oh, completely, yeah.
2: Um, what is it about bookshop customers in particular that makes them so peculiar?
3: Uh, do you know, I don't know. I mean, I think retail in general suffers from having to put up with people who are rude and stupid and ignorant, and they they don't make up the majority of customers. I have to be, I suppose I ought to be fair about that. The, the majority of them are absolutely fine, they're great, but you tend to remember the ones who aren't. Uh, they they just stick in your mind more. Um, and I think there's, uh, George Orwell works in a bookshop in the 1930s, and he wrote um, a, an essay called Bookshop Memories, and I quote from it a lot in my book, and
2: you start each chapter with, with one a, of an
3: extract from it. Um, but one of the things that he said is that bookshops seem to attract, and I, his language wasn't the most politically correct, but it was a, a particular kind of lunatic. Um, even back, <laughs> even back then, Orwell noticed it in the bookshop that he was working in. So I think. I don't know what it is. I think you, when you work in a shop, you're a captive audience. And I think a lot of bookshop customers probably know quite a lot about whatever subject they're interested in. And if you're there and can't escape from them, they will tell you at considerable length about you know, the, the history of some sort of obscure train station up in the Northwest Highlands or whatever happens to be their life's passion. So you're stuck with them um, and they know it <laughs> and they, they make the most of it.
2: Um, I mean, obviously, it's not every single customer who's like this, as you just said. Um, how did some of your more regular customers react to the box, book's publication? Have they read it?
3: Uh, I, I do disguise a few people, but very thinly. I mean, they'd have to be really... Stupid not to recognise themselves, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's one. There's only one regular customer who I think is unhappy with his portrayal, and he's a guy called Bumbag Dave, and uh, he's he'll be sort of I don't know in his sixties, and he's always bedecked with bum bags. He has one round his neck, one round his waist, another one sort of slung casually over his shoulder, um, and he has an array of. Digital watches and mobile phones and things, and it just there's just this constant beeping sound wherever he goes um, from various devices, and I don't think he was too flattered with his depiction.
2: He's also not very happy with the firm of your local solicitors as well, isn't he? Oh it?
3: yeah, yeah. He's he's in a constant rage about his perceived injustices in the world, all of which are in his imagination. Well, although the. My depiction of him isn't isn't his imagination, so he's probably fair, fairly aggrieved by that.
2: You've given him something to something solid to cling to, anyway.
3: Yeah, okay. he, he goes around the other bookshops complaining about about me. He hasn't I haven't seen him since the book came out.
2: Oh dear, poor yeah. Dave. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've now got the giggles. Now it's it's, right. it, it was the bum bag around the neck that got me mm. the first time. Um,
3: it's full of condoms, that one, apparently. What? <laughs> yeah, uh, he showed it to one of the girls who was working in the shop, uh, a girl called Carol Anne who who um, used to work in the shop. And she said, what's in that bum bag? And he opened it up and it was full of condoms, which I think shows a healthy degree of optimism.
2: <laughs> but also a great regard for the health awareness campaigns of the 1980s.
3: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> He's not going to die of ignorance. <laughs>
2: very unprofessional <laughs> laughing now no it's good it's nice um so normally at this stage we'd, we'd sort of get the author to talk about their favorite independent bookshop which I think we're already doing because obviously your favorite independent bookshop
3: is
1: it's yours mine, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um,
3: so uh, that's one of the things I suppose about being self-employed and having a shop is it's very much a tie you don't get much of a chance to go around other people's shops because your opening hours are the same as theirs so I'd I don't really, I never really get to go and explore other bookshops. There are places I'd love to go. I'd love to go to Shakespeare and Company and just wander around the independent bookshops in London. It would be a, a luxury that I'd, uh, I'd thoroughly enjoy.
2: Um, but So let's talk a bit more about your shop itself and also about the other bookshops in the area because mm-hmm. you have mentioned that through Dave going into them. Um. Wigtown is Scotland's book town, isn't it?
3: It is, and it has been for, this is our 20th anniversary this year.
2: Yeah, so it was set up in 1998. You've owned the shop since 2001, is that right?
3: Yes, 2001, November, I Mm -hmm. bought it, so yeah, 17 years.
2: Um, Could you explain for the listeners who might not be as familiar with the booktown concept what it actually is?
3: Uh, Yeah, certainly, it was um, really Richard Booth in i think it was in 19 sometime in the 1970s who is a bookseller in hay on Wai, decided that it would be a good way to regenerate the sort of flagging economy of the town by by attracting um several other bookshops so you get you generate themed tourism book tourism and you get book lovers and book buyers to come to the town and his theory was kind of predicated upon having a critical mass so a number of bookshops that would make people think right, okay, now it's worth travelling to this place, making the effort to go there and staying there for a few days and and it worked, it worked really well. Um, so the Scottish government at the time decided it would be a good idea to try and replicate that model in Scotland so somebody at Strathclyde University did a, an academic study worked out that the economic model was transferable um, and ran a competition and Wigtown won it and it's been slow and we're never going to be hay because hay has a catchment of I don't know how many million within a 50-mile radius. Wigtown has a catchment of probably about 2.5 million mackerel and about 300,000 people. Um, so, you know, we don't have that same catchment. We're There just aren't big cities, big centres of population around. So we're never going to... It's never going to be the same as hay, but it, it certainly has worked in terms of the economic regeneration model. So we have about seven bookshops in Wigtown, but it's a very, very small place.
2: And you said it has worked as an economic regeneration, that that really comes across um, in the book that you've written as well. You, there's also the festival, or the two festivals that play a part in this as well.
3: Yeah, the, the festival, God, I remember the first year I was back, the festival was run it was just a handful of volunteers and none of us knew what we were doing. We didn't even have a marquee. And I I remember the first festival that I was back for, I I made a marquee in my garden out of a sheet of tarpaulin and some old pallets. And one of the people we'd invited was David Mitchell, who'd just written Cloud Atlas, and it was Booker shortlisted, I think. And he turned up for his event in my garden and under my, it it looked like a homeless shelter. um, And I think six people turned up, uh, which was deeply embarrassing. But that was in the early days when people didn't really make, people didn't know about us, people didn't come, they didn't realise the calibre of the guests, we, speakers we had. So now, if David Mitchell turned up now, as he was then, just a Booker shortlisted um, name, he would fill out our big marquee, no question. It wouldn't just be five people turning up. Uh, so it's evolved in the last 20 years from something that really was pretty basic uh, to something that's really quite slick and sophisticated and part of that means that it kind of slightly has lost a little bit of its charm because the the rate at which things went wrong was much higher back then and consequently it was much funnier. Um, but now everything, very little goes wrong now, and it's, it's a pretty slick operation. And I think people turn up to the festival because they, they just know it's going to be good. They don't even, sometimes they don't even look at the program because they know that the quality is going to be good. There's always going to be something interesting on, and there's enough events and enough of a range of subjects that whatever whoever you are, whatever you're into, you'll find something um, so now it's, yeah, it's over 10 days now. It used to be over a week, one weekend, but it's it's become, it's the second biggest festival, book festival in Scotland after Edinburgh. And you know. But again, we're never going to catch up with Edinburgh. Um, but I think we've done a pretty good job.
2: That sounds incredible. There's also another uh, book-related project in Wigtown as well, which is The Open Book.
3: Yes, The Open Book. This again, this is Jessica's idea. Uh, so Jessica, when She first came over to Wigtown, she was working for NASA in California and she decided she had some leave that she needed to take and she'd always had this dream of working in a bookshop by the sea in Scotland. So she just Googled bookshop by the sea in Scotland and came up with my shop and she asked me if she could come over and I said yes, that's fine and then she sort of never left really. Um, But she was walking past one of the other bookshops in Wigtown which was... um, Up for sale and, excuse me, uh, so this other bookshop was up for sale and she thought there must be other people like me who have this dream of working in a bookshop. And so she persuaded my parents to buy it. My parents converted the upstairs, which was part of the shop, into a a two-bedroom apartment. Um, And people can rent it out and run the bookshop for a week. And much to everyone's amazement it has been booked solid and is booked solid for the next four years. Uh, And I don't know any other accommodation provider in Scotland who will have anything like that in terms of being booked up. So it's been a huge success and people from all over the world have come to run it. um, And it's been written up in, last weekend it was in the New York Times. Uh, We've just had some fascinating people and it's great for the town actually to have the sort of culturally diverse range of peoples. We literally have had people from all over the world. Um, and so we get to meet them and they bring something to the town that's a bit different and it's just a fantastic thing. It works remarkably well.
2: That is the thing, isn't it? It is one of those, essentially for many people, you are living their dream. Now I know for you there are shifting boxes of books around and getting covered in dust and obviously rude customers, but for many people the... Being able to run a bookshop in Scotland is akin to the pub in Shropshire or the B and B in Cornwall. It's it's the, the the occupation that's got a sort of idyllic Absolutely, glamour to it.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I know when I when I left Bristol, so I was working in Bristol for a few years, um, and I was kind of just doing dossing jobs, you know, not really advancing any sort of career. Um, and I, I was back home visiting my parents and. I went into the bookshop as I always did and just got chatting to the owner and he was asking me what I was doing and I explained and he said, "Ah, oh, you want to come back and open it by my bookshop because I want to retire. And I so I said, well, I don't have any money. He said, you don't need to worry about money. That's what banks are for. So I went to the bank and they duly lent me the money and I didn't really do it out of any great desire to be a bookseller. I just kind of fell into it. I mean, with hindsight now, I wouldn't swap it for anything. It's fantastic. Um, but I remember going back to Bristol and speaking to my friends and saying, "Yeah, I'm going to be leaving. I'll, you know, I've bought, bought a bookshop," and every single one of them sort of looked kind of wistfully and said, "Oh, I'd really love to do that." I was thinking, "Really? Why did you just do it?" <laughs> you know, it's okay. There are not everybody has the luxury of just being able to uproot their lives and do it. But really, if you want to open a bookshop. Do it. Or, or work in the open book for a week and see how you like it and then decide.
2: What is it do you think that appeals to people so much though?
3: I think it's just being surrounded by books. I think it's as simple as that. Uh, for, in, the reality of it is different because you don't get the luxury of spending great amount, a great amount of time reading. But the exciting thing for, from my point of view running it is the buying because it's secondhand books, you just never know what you're going to find when you walk into a house. You literally have no idea. I think it's different if you're selling new books because you're buying from a list and you're, you know what the prices are and what your margins are. Secondhand books, it's a complete minefield. You never know what you're going to find. So I've come across in my 17 years some extraordinarily beautiful books.
2: You had a, a very lucky find of some pristine can first edition Ian Flemings, didn't you?
3: Yeah, that was in a house outside Edinburgh, and there were, I think, 12,000 books that we had to shift from. It was a garage that had, the guy had um, shelved out, and but he had them. He'd bought so many, he was just obsessive, that he'd double-stacked them. So there were two books deep on every shelf, and... Um, a lot of them had been quite badly eaten by mice, which is a, a real problem. And it always happens in garages because you know, you, there's very little to disturb them. Uh, and I was getting to the end of boxing these things up. We had to hire a lorry for it. And eventually I was starting to despair. There were some good things. There were some early J.G. Ballard science fiction things. and um, But I was starting to despair of finding anything worth money. And then I just came across 12 Ian Fleming first editions in mint dust jackets, which thankfully the mice hadn't attacked. They obviously didn't particularly like Ian Fleming, but they, um, yeah, they were intact. So I put them into an auction in Edinburgh, and several of several of them broke world records. But that those books essentially paid for that deal. But that's the excitement is not knowing what you're going to find. You know, when you open a box or open a cupboard, it's that's the thrill of it.
2: So on to the books that you've brought with you, uh, mostly from your shop too. Um, I wondered uh, which one, well let's go for the one on the top of the pile because they're actually here with us in the studio. It's uh, one of your favourite children's books and it's not something I know anything about but the title is fascinating.
3: Okay, it's called The Pool of the Black Witch by BB which was the um, nom de plume of a guy called Dennis Watkins Pitchford who was uh didn't just write children's books but he wrote a lot about natural history and he was also a fantastic illustrator mainly woodcut so he wrote and illustrated most of his books um this is a copy that i had in the shop because it's out of print so i wasn't able to get hold of a a new copy but um you can see the sort of lino cut woodcut illustrations there are they're, they're really beautiful and there's
2: a lovely illustration that Sean just showed me of um, a line of cut. Is it a salmon? It's a, a
3: trout. A trout.
2: Apologies, my fish uh, identification okay.
3: isn't so great. I know it's a trout, not from the illustration, but because I read, I remember reading the book. Um, so I have always been a keen fisherman. Um, I caught my first fish when I was two and uh, I, I wasn't a huge reader as a child. So finding something that actually completely captivated me was difficult i'd I'd sort of not finish books or be given books to read that i just didn't like but this is all about a a young boy trying to catch this huge fish uh in the pool of the black wish which and it's so evocative and i just all i can just smell the smells of the, the, the water at night when he's the way he describes it um when the boy's trying to catch this huge fish and all the like the smells of the flowers and the leaves and all those things. He, he's a brilliant writer when it comes to, first of all, telling a, a very good story, but secondly, evoking that sense of place and nature and the thrill of the chase. So that's that would definitely be my favourite children's book.
2: It's great. It's a really interesting one to find out about. Now, I imagine that James Hogg has come from the Scottish room of your shop. I love that you have a dedicated Scottish room. Actually,
3: this didn't come from the Scottish room. It came from uh, Wigtown Festival Company has a a small bookshop as part of the the premises and they sell new books. Uh, So I was given strict instructions that books were not to be bought from that website whose name cannot be uttered, um, which I wouldn't do anyway. Uh, So I got the festival bookshop to order this for me and it's Oxford World's Classics but I think it's been published by Canongate and various other publishers so it's The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg and it was written in I remember reading this a few years ago and just being astonished to discover how old it was because he was writing at the same time as Walter Scott so I think it was 1835 or something I can't see it in the, in the um, publication details there But I've found Scots, I'm ashamed to admit, quite hard work, but Hogg, I read that on the train to London um, a few years ago, thinking, it's just one of those things in the canon of Scottish literature that I ought to tick off, and I'm dreading it, and I loved it. I just couldn't put it down. It's so modern, there's a a huge twist in the middle. It could have been written yesterday. The style of writing's brilliant, the subjects he's dealing with are brilliant, the the capacity for religion to allow people to do terrible things, um, predestinarianism, uh, it, it's just so modern in its themes and um, its style of writing that I think it's it's really a book that should be on everyone's reading list. But that's my classic. I had to pick a classic, so that's my classic. I know it's
2: your classic. Do you think people have, you know, you, you sort of had this kind of rather weary expression about like, oh, another one of the canon to take off. Um, do you think that's a relatively common thing?
3: I think so yeah i certainly well, not amongst everybody i mean I know plenty of people who just can't get enough of the classics, but um i I think a lot of people come into to my shop looking for things that they don't particularly want to read but they think they ought to have read um, partly to make themselves look more clever which is entirely why I read Justified Sinner, but uh, (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, But yeah, I think there's a, I don't know, with the classics, are difficult because there is that kind of group of people who do feel that it's something they ought to read rather than something they want to read. So having said that, you read them and discover how great they are, and that's why they're classics.
2: It's true. But you don't always
3: approach them with that same enthusiasm. It's only afterwards, with hindsight, that you can appreciate them.
2: Uh we have another book that's considered a classic um but we are going to be talking about the jacket of this edition and I was thrilled that you'd pick this one because I also think it's an absolutely marvelous and incredibly clever cover design. So you've chosen George Orwell's 1984 but tell us about the edition and the jacket.
3: Yes, it's um a Penguin edition. It's I think it's the most recent Penguin edition and uh the jacket I just love because of the boldness of whoever decided to do this. Uh, so you have, it's this classic penguin look. So you've got the orange band at the top and the bottom and the white cream band in the middle where the title and author usually are. But instead of the title and author, there are two huge black blocks of ink where it looks like both have been redacted. And I just think it's a brilliant idea. It's so clever and it's so brave of someone to actually have the title of a book blocked out on the cover so you've no idea what it is if you hold it up to the light you can you can actually see the the imprint of it underneath but it's uh, I think it was a, an inspired cover design and it it also sticks with the the classic penguin look as well which i think is you know, they've they've shaped a lot of cover illustration for the 20th century
2: it's very bold, but it, it, it's so good at conveying the themes of the book. Oh, absolutely. And you get a lot of the visual information from the Penguin setup as well. Yeah, so.
3: the, the sort of oppression, censorship, control thing. It's all there in, in that one glance. You know what it is.
2: I um, actually remember it going viral on Twitter. Um, and I can't remember which country it was. I think it might have been someone from America who oh, really? said, look at this. This is terrible. And I had coincidentally seen it in a bookshop quite recently and before that and everyone was saying no actually that's that's the cover design <laughs> but it did get quite picked <laughs> and up someone and
3: actually thought that it, it had been censored oh, yes goodness,
2: really. uh, so uh, it, it clearly did a very good job in yeah that it sense.
3: achieved it's it's uh, what it set out to do um it's
2: 1984 a favorite anyway
3: it is i i really i do like 1984 i think it, I, I like all all of Orwell's writing that i've read i, I haven't read a huge amount but um I do remember reading 1984 when I was about fourteen thirteen or fourteen, and it did really make me start to question uh, like the authority in all its all its forms um but <clears throat> the one thing i i recently that recently occurred to me kind of rereading a bit of nineteen eighty four was um the way things things he predicted haven't all happened obviously um but the the state surveillance through your television or whatever he called it in 1984, I can't remember, something screen, um, with the camera there watching you and also feeding you information from the you know, state information all the time. Um, that hasn't happened, but what's ha- we haven't had that imposed on us, but what has happened is that we are now buying things that are listening to us in our homes from Amazon and Google and the, the surveillance is something we're inviting in rather than having imposed on us. And all that information is all being gathered in the same way that Orwell predicted, but just not by the states, but by big multinationals.
2: Now, I know that you're, um, that's why, for another reason, I thought that was quite interesting with this choice as well. Um, not the most massive fan of everything being digitized. Um, no. There are some quite interesting YouTube videos um, which purport to uh, fix a popular brand of e-reader, whereas in actual fact they end up being shot and set on fire and hit with large wooden
3: hammers. Well, I sort of fix them in a kind of mafia way rather than an NHS (laughs) sort of way. (laughs)
2: Uh, But very much worth watching for anyone who is uh, listening. Um, So going back to the bookshop uh, and the book that inspired you to uh, write your own, Yes, we have Jen Campbell.
3: This is Jen Campbell's weird things customers say in bookshops, which is is it was brilliant. It was so so, such a simple idea and executed so well, and it did extremely well. And I'm I'm so glad uh, that that Jen did it because it's sort of again in a way that I hope my book has to some degree gives you an insight into what it's actually really like working in a bookshop. And the the sort of things that that people do say, and I don't know. Jen's probably got a better imagination than I am because she's written fiction. Um, I don't think I have the the capacity to do that. But I couldn't make up the stuff that happens in my shop, and I'm yeah, you know, I'm pretty sure Jen's will be absolutely spot on as well when it comes to accuracy. But yeah, it's it was inspiring, inspirational, and I got given it by about ten people as well. <laughs> so, 10 <laughs> copies of it for Christmas in 2012
2: Well, one can only hope that uh, people are buying other booksellers 10 copies of uh, your book as Fingers well Fingers
3: crossed, yeah
2: Fingers crossed, hey Is there a bit of Jen's book in particular that you found particularly funny or oh, something that really resonated it, you know, with it's you? been so
3: long since I read it that um, I, I think I can't, I can't think of anything off the top of my head but I think probably there are a few incidents where a customer will get the title of a book wrong and Jen corrects them but they refuse to accept that the correction is correct and that they're wrong um, and that's that's a theme that kind of runs through book selling is that the customer refuses to accept that they're wrong even though they 90% of the time they are well maybe not 90 maybe 80 85
2: we could probably negotiate this down yeah. couldn't we, <laughs> we could a little bit yeah. <laughs> um we're going to go on to a book you actually haven't read yet yourself.
3: Okay, so that... Um, which
2: is Gavin Francis' Shapeshifters.
3: It is. Um, and I I've, I've read Adventures in Human Being and thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I keep bumping into Gavin at various things. And he's a Could thoroughly... Could you tell
2: everyone a bit more about who he is? For-
3: uh, he's a doctor. Um, a, a, I don't know if he's a GP or a surgeon or quite what he does. but um, he, So he still practices... Uh, but he's he's a great writer he just his way of writing is very engaging. He can take complex ideas and simplify them without being patronizing and um, everything he's got fantastic anecdotes to accompany a lot of the the material he's writing about and the, the themes um, so this one is about human change, so metamorphosis um, and one all the sorts of ways in which the human body changes through um, aging and processes like that or just general deterioration but also the ways in which people can kind of impose changes on their bodies so I I just picked it open there and there's a a chapter on anorexia so it's about changes whether you choose to make them or your body chooses to make them Um, and I'm very much looking forward to reading it.
2: And if you were to walk into a bookshop what do you think it would be would detract it? Is it because you already know his work?
3: Or? I know his work and I know him, but I also think the subject is—it's a fascinating subject that's much broader than it first seems. When you talk about it's just changes in the human body, obviously people think, well, going bald, menopause—you know, all those you know, hair growing out of your nose and ears if you're a bloke. Um, but there's, obvi- there's obviously a lot more to it than that, and you know he'll have explored every every element of it.
2: I um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was an interview you gave with, I think, the bookseller a couple of years ago, um, and you said that you weren't actually that big a reader of non-fiction.
3: I'm not. Um, <clears throat> so this I, is
2: a real serious recommendation. Yeah, isn't well, it? Yeah, well,
3: actually, there's another book in front of me, which is one that I'm reading at the moment, um, which is also non-fiction. And I do much prefer fiction, but I was at a, a book festival in Melrose a couple of weeks ago, and... Uh, I was having breakfast with a guy called Jamie Bartlers, who was telling me about this book that he'd written, which is called The People Versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy and How We Save It. And over breakfast, we we spoke about various things um, and essentially about how what we were talking about earlier, Amazon and Google are gathering so much information uh, and being able to predict patterns of behavior and buying patterns and it's it's quite sinister and he's not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination he's you know he's really well informed um so we had this great chat over breakfast about how evil these big multinationals are and how eventually you know, they they're going to have far more control than government if something isn't done to break them up and it's <clears throat> it's very easy to write that off as conspiracy theory but you look at what's happening and this book is fascinating in terms of what it, it shows you what's what's going on the one thing that was I, I did did find really interesting at breakfast with jamie was that um we were talking about the, the kind of fundamental ethos behind i'm really sorry for banging on about amazon all the time but um, we'll the, say it's strong personal okay, branding yeah <laughs> um this is the sort of ethos that that drives what they do. Um, and Jamie, who I, I thought would know this, um, I said to him, have you ever tried, uh, if you go to Google and type in relentless.com, it takes you straight to Amazon. So Bezos, when he set up, Google, uh, when he set up Amazon, um, he, the first domain name he registered was relentless.com. Uh, and his board basically said, mm, it's not very cuddly and fluffy. Can we not call it Amazon or something instead? So, But that was his thinking behind it. And that gives you a real eye into the mind of you know, what he was trying to do when he set that up.
2: And then um, finally, I wanted to talk about Jonathan Meads. Uh,
3: so Jonathan Meads just happens to be the book that I've been reading for the last week or two. Um,
2: it's an encyclopedia of myself. It's
3: an autobiography and it is brilliant. It's so clever i mean i love mead's documentary work and i just think he's he's inspired and inspiring again um and it's beautifully written it's it, he writes the way he flows the way he he's really good at doing lists of things um but it's it's a beautifully evocative image of growing up in britain in the 1950s um well post war britain and uh some of the characters in it are, I mean he's so rude about people it's just it makes me feel all warm inside um <laughs> but he writes beautifully uh I, unfortunately I have to reach for the dictionary about four times every page but that's okay I can cope with that because it's educating me um and the only thing is it does make it reading it a bit more slow but it's it's a really beautiful book and it's it's thoroughly enjoyable and i can't recommend it highly enough
2: um thank you very much for being here with me today sean um it's been an absolute treat having you in the studio uh and what you haven't been able to hear is me silently laughing so it wasn't picked up by the microphone but um it's been a really great chance to talk to you and sean bithels the diary of a bookseller is published by profile and is out now Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale, Profile Books and Canongate and was presented by me, Anna Fielding. To get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash read like a writer. And we'd love to hear what you have to say too. So do tweet us at readlikeapod.